Hello and welcome back, listeners of Lost Dimensions, for the first podcast of the new year. Today we have on Yuval Levin. Yuval Levin is the director of the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he also holds the Beth and Ravnell Curry Chair in Public Policy. Yuval Levin is a founder and editor of National Affairs. He is also a senior editor at the New Atlantis, a contributing editor at National Review, and a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times. Today, I have him on to talk about his latest book, A Time to Build, and I hope you all enjoy. Hello and welcome, Mr. Levin. It is an honor to have you on the podcast today. So getting into our first question, as someone who one day hopes to become an author himself, what was the process like in creating this book or books in general? You've written a couple of books by now, so I would suspect you have a kind of routine that goes into the process. Well, thank you very much for having me, first of all, and I appreciate the question. Um, You know, I think a book, a nonfiction book that makes an argument has to start with a sense of that argument, that is with a question to which the book is going to offer an answer. And I think that if you're going to write a book like that, um, you have to have for yourself a pretty clear idea of what is the question to which this is an answer. And then gradually work your way toward, well, what is the answer? Um, And that's never a straightforward thing. It requires offering the reader background on some set of problems. It requires working through uh, some pre-existing approaches to that problem and then offering your own way forward. I think once you see the problem you're trying to get at, the question you're trying to get at, the story you're trying to tell, um, a book takes shape over time as you almost approach the subject as a reader yourself and ask, what would I need to know to really get to a place where I understand this approach to the problem? So for me, it takes a lot of time. Um, It might start with a simple question, but from there, there's a lot of reading to do. Uh, You know, you're never going to be the first person to get to a question. So you have to deal with what other smart people have had to say um, and ultimately try to find your way to an approach that can speak to a broad range of readers. Have your book experiences been that different? Because you write the great debate out of your UChicago dissertation to an extent. And then the fractured republic and a time to build uh, definitely play off of each other um, in the pairing. So like, how have those experiences been different from each other? Yeah, they've been quite different. The Great Debate, as you say, began as a as a doctoral dissertation at the University of Chicago. It's quite different from the dissertation, but it's a it, it's a it's a version of it. It's a it's a version of it made accessible to non-academic readers. And so, in that case, um, you know, turning it into a book. First of all, the dissertation was finished. Um, the work of writing the book was mostly a work of removing um, elements of the argument rather than. Uh, fundamentally working to it from 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 scratch. Um, and there the challenge was, is this really going to be accessible to a broader readership? Is it going to be of interest? And how can you make it so that you don't have to be an expert academic to um, make sense of this? That was a very different process of producing a book than the other two you mentioned, um, where the Fractured Republic really began from a sense that there was something to explain about the contemporary American situation, 
and gradually worked its way into an argument about how we got here, how we got to a place where we are as divided as we are. Um, the a, a Time to Build, the most recent book I've written, literally began in the course of talking about the fractured republic. After the book was published, I went to a variety of college campuses and bookstores and all kinds of places to talk about the book. And people would ask questions after a talk. I, I was quickly tired and bored of the talk itself, which I was giving every day and it was identical. Um, but once in a while, I'd get a question and, you know, I'd give some answer to the question, but then that night, you know, in a hotel room on some college campus, I would think that was a very good question that I didn't really answer. And a lot of those had to do with what a way forward would really look like. How do you get from diagnosis toward prescription, if not to it? And that's really what led me toward A Time to Build. So those two books really do work off each other. Um, I hope that the second of them doesn't actually require a person to have read the first to make sense of it. But certainly for me, they follow directly from each other. All right. So getting into A Time to Build now, the book addresses the seeming twilight age America finds itself in. Um, and so why for addressing uh, the current uh, predicament we are in, why are institutions the appropriate frame of analysis for the current challenges? Um, and then how do you define the somewhat nebulous concept of institutions in contrast to some of the typical definitions that you go over? And then lastly, um, and I know this, there's a lot in this, um, you say institutions have gone from formative to performative and that they aren't really asking for our confidence anymore. They're just asking for attention. What does all that mean? Yeah, well, thanks. I, I think that's the right strain, string of questions because in a sense, that's how the argument of the book works. And it's also how my own thinking about this worked. Um, the book begins from a question. And the question is, uh, how do we explain the peculiar combination of symptoms that seem to characterize the kind of social crisis that we're living through now? Um, some of them are, they seem like political or sociological symptoms, you know, intense partisanship, bitter divisions, um, a, a, a sense of breakdown about a lot of parts of American life. Some of them are personal or interpersonal. They, they seem like isolation, alienation, um, an opioid crisis in some parts of our country, uh, an increase in suicide rates among younger Americans. It seems like these things are related to each other, and yet they're not obviously connected. They're not the same thing. And in thinking about that set of questions, I came to the view that what holds them together is something like a breakdown in how we understand America's core institutions. Um, institutions are, in a sense, what enable us to do things together in, in, a, in a human society. Um, there are a lot of ways, as you say, to define the term. There's a, there's a great book by the political scientist Hugh Hecklow um, called Thinking Institutionally, where he works through more than 120 academic definitions of the term institution. And the reason there's so many is that it's such a fundamental concept. They break down along discipline lines. You know, economists have definitions that are all about rules. Sociologists have definitions that are about structures. Political scientists tend to think in terms of frameworks. In working through all those, and also I would say really in drawing on a kind of Aristotelian approach to this question, um, I came to the view that 
for the purpose of this book, and I would not say that this is a definition that should override all those others, but for the purpose of this subject, the way to think about what an institution is, is to understand it as a form. And I end up defining institutions as the durable forms of our common life. A form is a shape, a structure. And when you think about a social form, what it really means is the way in which people act together around a common purpose. That purpose gives shape to their relations to each other. So think about the, the core institution of any society is the family. The family is a form in the sense that it has a purpose, so that, you know, it, it, it is a group of people living together, trying to achieve some things together. But the form also gives each of those people a role as a parent, as a grandparent, as an uncle and an aunt, as a child. Um, everybody kind of knows in relation to the others what place they have. A lot of our other institutions work in the same way. They, some of them much more explicitly serve a particular purpose, um, you know, to educate children or to uh, enforce the law or to sell some product or produce some good. Um, and the, the institution gives different people different roles in relation to that purpose that they're all engaged in advancing together. Um, in the process, because it is a form, what, what it means to understand it as a form, the institution also, also shapes the people in it. You know, to be a father is a particular thing, and it turns you into a particular kind of human being. Now, there are many ways that it can do that, but fundamentally, it, it helps you to become a, the sort of human being that is shaped by that responsibility and that role. And the same is true about being a lawyer or being a teacher, uh, being a citizen. Our institutions form us, they shape us. And one way to think about the kind of crisis we're dealing with, the sorts of problems we're trying to diagnose here, is that we've gone from thinking of our institutions as playing that role, as, as shaping us, forming us to be a certain kind of human person, to instead looking at institutions as offering us platforms um, on which to perform, on which to be who we are already. And the difference is a big difference. So that if we, if we look at an institution, say, the, the, the Centers for Disease Control in the middle of a pandemic, and we think of that institution as shaping the people in it to undertake a certain kind of responsibility. There are things they wouldn't say to us because they're at the CDC, they're not just talking. And if instead we come to think, well, this is just a place for people to feel important and to, uh, to lord it over us and stand on a stage and, and, and do whatever kind of activism they wanna do, we find it much harder to trust that institution when we see it that way. When it looks like just a place for people to build a following, gain an audience. Um, I, in the book, I think that way, for example, about Congress. Congress is an institution that gives the people in it a particular role, a very distinct role to bargain and negotiate towards ways of addressing public problems. But a lot of members of Congress now use the institution as a stage, as a platform, to stand on and perform and take part in a kind of culture war combat that isn't really about the job. And that makes it much harder for us to take Congress seriously and to have high expectations of it. And when you come to see that pattern, you see it in, in so many different institutions that it seems like it's playing some significant part, it doesn't explain everything, but it's playing an important part in why we've lost confidence in so many important uh, institutions of our society. And so in a sense of lost confidence in one another too. And so it's a piece of the puzzle that I think we tend to ignore 
And it's worth highlighting if we're trying to understand the situation we're in. In chapter two, you discuss outsiderism and insiderism as the primary causes of decaying institutional trust. Uh, but in reading, I had a little bit of trouble di distinguishing the two phenomena. Both seem, in my opinion at least, to be focused inward on some sort of desire of the individual and disregard of the various institutional demands placed upon them. What I guess uh, would you say is the main difference that insiderism abuses and trades off of institutional capital, <clears throat> capital while outsiderism gains legitimacy by challenging institutional structures, or is it something else? Yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. So that in a sense, insiderism is a familiar kind of corruption where people who have power by virtue of their position in an important institution as a, as a banker or a priest or a journalist um, will use that institution to advance their own ends, uh, to, 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 to steal money, to abuse a child. Um, the idea is that they are insiders. They are operating as, as position holders within an important institution, but they're using it to advance their own end. Outsiderism, which is um, in some ways a less familiar form of this corruption, though it's very common now, is a way of refusing to accept the responsibility of an institutional role altogether and saying, I'm here as a critic, even though you're actually, you know, the CEO of Nike um, or, uh, or a member of Congress. You spend all your time as a member of Congress criticizing the institution and saying, you wouldn't believe what these people do here. When, you know, someone could turn to you and say, well, I don't know, you are the chairman of the finance committee. So maybe you're the people doing this. Um, there's a strong tendency now in a lot of our institutions for people to put on that kind of air to say, well, I'm just, a, I, I, I'm as much an outside observer as any critic. And I'm here to say that this isn't right. Um, rather than to say, I am the person in charge here, and I'm going to try to make sure that this is made right. Um, there's a very powerful example of this in our politics, too. I, I think if you look at the way that Donald Trump behaved as president, for example, a lot of his time was spent criticizing the government, essentially, as though he were still an outsider, um, you know, tweeting about the things the Department of Justice was doing. The Department of Justice worked for him during those four years. And, you know, he was responsible for everything they were doing, first of all. And secondly, he could have done something about it. But he never quite understood his role that way. And I think there are a lot of people in a lot of our institutions now who would like to see themselves fundamentally as, uh, as outsider critics. And there's something very attractive about that. You don't have a lot of responsibility and you can display your own integrity in opposition to some failure of integrity on the part of a uh, on the part of an institution that seems corrupt. But usually the downside of that kind of outsider position is that you don't have any power and all you can do is talk about it. These are people who do have power and yet they choose to use that power in a way that paints them as the critics with integrity when everybody else is corrupt. And that's just a, a failure of responsibility when you actually are in a place to do something about it. How is technology going to be either a boom or a bust in the battle for renewal? I don't like the idea really that technology just happens to society, which 
My opinion just ignores technology as a result of human choices and technology is shaped by a vision of the human person. At the same time, um, if we admit that forms of technology such as social media are constant, excuse me, conscious choices sustained and created by a vision of the human person, which um, I, I can fairly say most conservatives would object to, then what is the path forward given how embedded these technologies have become in society? I really right now, when I think about it for too long, struggle to see how we would get beyond social media, which just seems to graft onto our individualistic culture um, that has existed since the founding uh, with America, yeah. um, as the Englishman left alone, as Tocqueville uh, would say, of course. Um, so, so what can we uh, do around the issue of technology? I think it's a great question, and, and I would start where you start, which is technology is a set of tools, and we use it the way we do because we want to. And so the question to begin with may be, why is it that we want to be doing this to ourselves? Now, it's not that simple. We're not passive victims of, um, of these technologies, and we're also not passive victims of our own desires. Um, there is a certain character to, to social media and to a, a, a lot of what the internet has made possible, I would say that a fair amount of it is rooted in a, in a kind of peculiarly individualistic notion of social life um, that has a communication heavy sense of what social means. That is, it's, it allows us to express ourselves um, to one another but of course, that's not all that social is. It's not even, I think, at the heart of what it is. In fact, in the last couple of years, in the course of the pandemic, we've really come to see that socializing has to it at least two really distinct elements, one of which is communication, the other of which is something more like communion, actually being together in a way that allows us to be seen and known, to see and know other people, and that tends to moderate us um, that tends to cause us to think about how we need to change ourselves so that we might be um, better able to live with other people. Um, when you separate communication from communion, you take away that incentive for that sort of moderating socialization. Um, and, and socialization just becomes expression. Um, social media treats expression as engagement. And of course, expression is crucial to engagement, but it's not all of it. And so I think we've ended up in this peculiar place where people can feel like they've done something in society, they've, they've, they've taken an action, they've, they've stood up for something, simply by saying that this is their opinion, or by giving it a thumbs up when somebody else does. And that just gives us wrong impression about what's required of us in order to be responsible um, citizens and in order to be responsibly engaged with one another in a social way. That is in many ways a function of the technology, um, the nature of the technology. Now, I think we've, we've pursued it as we have because it's attractive to us. We are individualists. We do tend to think that expression is hugely important. Um, social media offers us a way out of some of the more uh, 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 challenging, difficult, demanding parts of being a member of society. 
other technologies too, not just social media, you know, sort of what we think of as internet technologies are just ways of being loners uh, in an effective way. You know, you can, um, you can just walk into the restaurant, pick up a bag and you have everything you need and you didn't have to talk to anybody. If you're, uh, if you don't like to make eye contact with people, that's great. Um, and in a way, a lot of our internet technologies are designed for people who would like to have everything they need in life without making a lot of eye contact. Um, that's not great, and that is a function of some of the of some of the the characteristics of the technology itself. But I think these two things work together in a way that we have to take account of, and that ultimately the way to change what the what the technology asks of us is to change what we ask of it to recognize that there's a problem here, which I think an increasing number of people do recognize, broadly speaking, that social media has not been great for our social lives, our political life, our civic life. We know there's something wrong with it. Um, so that there is at least an openness to some alternative ways of using these technologies. I think also people have gotten a little bit better at recognizing the downsides of the technology. It's not a surprise to anybody now that um, you know that TikTok is really bad for teenage girls. I mean, that's people say that and say, yeah, obviously that's right. That doesn't mean we have the will to to to, to walk away, but everybody kind of understands that. A lot of people know that that Twitter is just really bad for our political culture, um, and lots of people on Twitter spend their time on Twitter complaining about Twitter. Um, and so. I, I think that suggests that we have gotten a little bit smarter about these things and maybe open to different ways of using the technology. That has to be thought about as a way of going forward from where we are. I don't think we undo social media. We're not going to get rid of it. Um, it has some real advantages, for one thing. And in any case, a lot of people really like it a lot. So the question is, how do you make it better in ways that recognize how it deforms our social engagement? I think we're at the very earliest phases of recognizing the problem and thinking about what could be done about it. We don't have an answer to that question, but we are asking that question, which five years ago, we were doing a lot less of. 10 years ago, we weren't doing it at all. There was a lot of utopianism about what uh, the internet and social media would mean for politics and for civic life. There was a sense that, well, it'll just allow us all to be connected. That'll be amazing. Um, it has not worked out that way. And I think we're coming to realize that in ways that are going to help us think about solutions. But do I have the solution? Absolutely not. Going back to Rousseau in the 18th century, and um, arguably the differences um, on human nature between the political right and political left is whether or not human nature is intrinsically good or bad. On the one hand, you have original sin. On the other, you have the noble savage. Yeah. And of course, those on the left, broadly speaking, tend to view human nature with rose-tinted glasses and view society as a barrier to their ideal of the liberated, expressive individual. Man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains, as Rousseau open, uh, opens a meal, of course. Um, and obviously, you wrote a book on the differences between the right and the left, and so you can speak to those differences. But that brings me to ask, how then do you even begin to make an argument about the necessity of um, formative institutions to somebody who rejects institutions and first principles as dangerous and oppressive? How does 
that also uh, leads me to ask, how does the Republican Party stop playing ping pong with the Democratic Party for control of government and turn itself into a more durable coalition uh, capable of providing the much needed change um, and capable of providing the argument when so many incentives and habits built over the past decades um, point to that uh, not being likely or possible? Well, those are two huge questions, of course, and questions that have to occupy anybody who wants to think about the future uh, on the right. I I'd say a few things. To begin with, I think you're right in, in reaching for um, an idea of human nature when thinking about the difference between left and right. And, and I would say, in a sense, that idea begins with the question of whether what we need from politics is liberation from oppressive institutions or whether what we need from politics is formation um, through constructive institutions. And conservatives tend to begin from the premise that the human person is fallen and, uh, and, and sinful and unready to be free, but capable of being formed toward freedom by, by institutions like the family, like the church, like the school, and, and like political life too. That what we need from those institutions is that we need to be changed by them so that we become capable of being free people. I think there's an implicit assumption on the left that people begin free, but that our society is full of institutions that exist to serve the powerful and that ultimately, therefore, just oppress most people. And that what we need from politics is liberation from these powerful institutions and from these long-standing modes of oppression um, so that the human person can be free. Those are very different ways of starting out in politics, and they're very different ways of thinking about what it's all for. Um, I would say they both, they, they're both liberal, or they can be. Um, they both are ways of thinking about what our kinds of institutions are for, but they answer that question very differently. Um, and there's no doubt that, the, that my argument in A Time to Build is a conservative argument in this respect. Um, it begins from the premise that we need formative institutions and that without them, we become less capable of being free citizens in a free society. The book is in a way structured so as to make that argument more persuasive to people who don't start out assuming that that's the case. And for that reason, it starts with the problem we face in American life now. Rather than starting with the premise that we need formative institutions, it starts with a problem to which such institutions seem like they might be the solution. There's a way to read the book the other way, right? From the, from the end to the beginning, um, because the book ends with that conservative premise. If it began from it, I think it would, it, it would be essentially the same argument, but as an explanation of why we have the problems we have. Um, as it is, it begins from those problems, which I think people can see, even if we don't all agree on what exactly causes them. And it offers an answer to the question of what causes them and what might be done about it. An answer that tries to lead the reader to see that we do need institutions that can form us to be better and to be free. Obviously, that's not going to be persuasive to everybody. In a sense, what I'm trying to do is help people see why conservatives are right. And not everybody's going to think that. But that's the logic of the book. That's the structure of the argument. Um, to your broader question, you know, I think the Republican Party is in a place now where that view, the core conservative view, is just not as dominant among members of its coalition as it was, say, 30 years ago. 
Um, conservatives haven't always been at the center of the Republican coalition. They've always been part of it. I mean, really, as far back as, as, as Lincoln and the founding of the party. But they haven't always been the dominant part of it. I think that, that really was only true from about the middle of the 1960s until um, you know, maybe 2010. It's a long time. But the party doesn't always have to be this way. And I think that it is in a phase now where it's much more dominated by a kind of populist frustration, some of which is conservative and some of which is not, than it is fundamentally by the conservative disposition and, and assumptions. Um, I think that the future of the party requires it to turn back to those assumptions um, and put them at the center of things again, that in order to actually be able to offer solutions to the problems people face in their lives in America, Republicans do have to start from a conservative premise that we need certain kinds of institutions, that we need public policies that channel people's preferences from the bottom up and not the top down. And those th that logic can then be applied to all manner of public problems. But we're in a place now where the center of, of what Republicans offer the country is frustration with the American elite. Um, the American elite is largely progressive. And so that frustration is in a sense, conservative, but it's not conservatism. Um, and, you know, there's always this tension between populism and conservatism on the right. I think we lean too far in the populist direction now and need to relearn some of the reasons why conservatism ought to be at the center of what Republicans have to offer. Um, now I want to read you a beautiful passage you have um, on the institution of family that, quote, it resists easy categorization because it is primeval. The family has a legal existence, but it is decidedly pre-legal. It has a political significance, but it is pre-political too. It is pre-everything. Um, and then this is soon after followed by, quote, it is also therefore more than anything else in our experience, a form of our common life a structure for doing essential things together. That is what makes it our most basic institution. Just personally for me, this resonates deeply um, in a way that words really don't express. And it connects to the issues, um, uh, I think with state of nature theorists and social contracts uh, theorists for getting in their families yeah. Um, in the theories on the political arrangements of society, or one of the, uh, my favorite ways of saying this came from listening to uh, Professor Carter Sneed at Notre Dame, who said they are uh, childless men who forgot their childhood. Mm -hmm. um, furthermore, this understanding of the, of the family, uh, it connects back to another excellent book by the psychologist Joseph Henrik uh, called The Weirdest People in the World. In that book, uh, Professor Henrik deals how the distinctive psychology, cultural institutions, and as he argues, really, the ultimate economic and political success of Western civilization can be traced all the way back to changes made by the Catholic Church um, hundreds of years ago around kinship institutions, mm -hmm. which, of course, center around the family. All of that rambling um, is really just to say, for me personally, it's hard to imagine any revival or renewal of society that accepts formation more readily in contrast to the now present popularity of expressive individualism. 
that doesn't begin with the institution of the family. Therefore, in your minds, um, what are the opportunities for reform and improvement um, in the institution of the family that most excites or energizes you uh, when looking towards the future? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that, um, you know, the family is, is the great solvent of all confident political theories. Um, because especially modern liberal political theories, and I, I am, I am a, a modern liberal in the classical sense, but not in the Lockean sense, not in the sense that says it's all a contract among individuals. Um, I very much uh, am moved by Burke's, Edmund Burke's rejection of that kind of social contract, which basically begins by saying, look, people come into the world in a family. And so no human being has ever lived outside of society. And it's a strange thing to try to imagine a political theory by beginning from human beings outside of society, which is a condition that no human beings have ever experienced anywhere. I think that's right. The human person is fundamentally social. And the reason for that is the family. And in the absence of family, that human person is going to be deformed. Um, and so there is, no, there is no social revival that's possible without some kind of revival of family structure. Um, we've obviously seen a kind of collapse of, uh, of family formation in American life over the past 70 years or so. Um, there have been times like this before, um, even in the United States, although I think driven by different kinds of forces, um, you know, the, 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 the settling of the West in the US was, um, was profoundly disruptive to family life um, and created communities that were really broken because they lacked formed families. And ultimately that problem was addressed by, uh, by a religious revival. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It wasn't that somebody said, oh, we need a religious revival, so let's have one. That, it happened. And for that reason, um, and it, you know, it had to do with, with men unchained from families, frankly. Um, the, the the second great awakening in particular, which happened in response to um, the capacity of Christian formation to get men to stop drinking. I mean, it's almost that simple. And ultimately that was so transformative that it led people toward a deeper kind of religious revival. It wasn't just about the practical utility of religion, but about the truth of it. And a very important consequence of that was a restoration of the commitment to family life um, in, in the American experience. Um, I don't know that we can see our way from where we are to a, to a stronger society, except by way of some kind of religious revival, um, which in some important ways would be focused on family, but would also be broader than that. And in any case would be a reconnection with the truths of um, our traditional religions. In America, that, that probably means some kind of Protestant revival, just by the nature of our society. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm Jewish and I wish it were possible that everyone would be, but it's not, as that's not how this is going to happen. Um, and so I think we have to look for reasons for hope in a certain kind of Christian revivalism that might put family back at the center of American life. We're not living through one right now, let's be frank. Um, no way. And so how we get there from here, I think, has to begin from a pessimistic place. That is, 
from a recognition of the depths of the problem we have. Um, if everybody was happy with the status quo, I'd be much more pessimistic than I am because I think the status quo is very broken. But in fact, almost nobody's happy with it. You find very few people in our society now who say, this is the ideal. This is what we want to be doing from here on. There are some such people. I think they're deluded, but there aren't a lot. There are a lot of people who are very dissatisfied. They're looking to all kinds of uh, ways out. Some of them are political, and I think in some ways are um, dysfunctional, but there's still a search for solidarity in them. Um, some of them are cultural and social. What we don't have much of is genuine kind of familiar um, evangelism. Um, I think it's shocking how little we have. I think the American, the landscape of the American university at this point is begging for an effective evangelist, um, somebody native to the 21st century who understands what it is that leaves so many younger Americans dispirited or lacking in hope and can offer them a path from there to a, to a connection to, to a traditional religious formation. I, th I think that, that kind of person is almost inevitable. I mean, if you look at the, at the circumstances that younger Americans are living in now, they're begging for that kind of person and that kind of person will arise. But I wouldn't say I see them right now. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I, the, the, the roots of my hope are what they always are. Um, which is that human searching will never be satisfied with a broken society full of broken families. And that means we're looking for a better way um, so that when it presents itself, we might just see that it's worth our while. Yeah, just in thinking and listening to what you said, this isn't more of a question and it's more just of an observation. Last um, last fall in one of my uh, seminars, we were reading Plato's Republic, and it's just fascinating to me how far back some of the like distinctions between uh, society being like natural or being a social compact. Because book two um, yeah. of Plato's Republic opens with Glaucon and Adamantus's speeches, um, praising injustice and. If I remember correctly, Glaucon talks about uh, justice as essentially just like a game theory calculation, a pretext for uh, preservation by the weak um, against the stronger so that they don't have to suffer injustice. But like the same idea that it's planned out and people consent to it. Um, yep. The fact that that goes all the way back thousands of years uh, is just always fascinating. I think these are very old questions and that that's good and bad. I mean, it, 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 it suggests that the situation we're in is not so unusual, but also that the solutions, the ways forward that have worked for people in the past can work for us too. Um, that modern liberalism has not created a new human situation. I think liberalism is much more rooted in classical ways of thinking than some of its critics today tend to suggest for good and bad. Um, and that that means that there's much more room in it for some familiar ways forward, some of them philosophical, some of them religious, um, all of them traditional in one way or another. Um, I, 
I, I think these arguments go all the way back. I mean, they're really rooted in human nature in some way. They're really based in a, a, a question we've always had about what it is that holds our societies together and how they could be made better. All right, moving on now, you have an excellent piece in the dispatch called The Changing Face of Social Breakdown. Um, and this piece gets into the unique uh, challenges facing policymakers in the path to rebuilding solidarity, community, and um, of course, institutions. Um, if you don't mind uh, for listeners briefly summarizing the piece and comparing it um, to the argument made uh, in Ross Duthat's new book, The Decadent Society, how we are best positioned uh, to re-energize the country without going to, as you briefly talk about in the book, uh, William James' idea of the moral equivalent of war. For institutions, uh, as I think of it, and I'm sure you do as well, have suffered through the sexual revolution and an excess of dynamism and energy and then they've, I guess, have been sidelined by a retreat into alienation and virtual reality on the other extreme. Where do we begin um, to address this problem? And what are the differences inherent in dealing with the challenges of the, um, as you say, quote, pathologies of passivity? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll start in a place that isn't quite where the piece starts, which is, that essay is, in my mind, a kind of extension of the argument of the book you mentioned before, The Fractured Republic, which is that the, the United States in the middle of the 20th century found itself a society begging for relief from conformity. Um, its institutions were pretty strong. Its confidence in them was very high. Everybody felt like every voice in our society was telling them to be like everybody else. And people wanted relief from that and liberation of all forms, economic and cultural and social. And there was a sense that that kind of liberation would, would energize our society, would open up paths for people to pursue their own ways. And in some ways, the way we've thought about social breakdown since then has been as an excess of that kind of energy. Um, people breaking the bonds, the bounds of, of traditional institutions and just living their lives with excessive energy, um, doing things too soon, breaking out too quick, uh, doing too much of everything. And the result is chaos. And that's not wrong. That is one important way to understand social breakdown. What we've come to see in more recent years, um, as we've, I think, reached a point where that liberation um, is excessive and where people feel that, where there's a desire now for solidarity alongside that desire for personal liberation, is that there's another form of social breakdown that's distinct to a, a liberalized society and that looks more like passivity than hyperactivity, that looks like people holding back, um, feeling like they can't engage, like they're not part of something larger than themselves. So they don't have anything to jump into. They don't have anywhere uh, to express themselves intensely. What they have is um, a, a, a kind of sheltered space for themselves to be alone. And increasingly you find younger people uh, not jumping into life, not having kids too soon, not having sex too soon, but not doing those things at all. Um, and instead 
isolating into these kind of sheltered spaces. And that's a very different kind of social challenge. It's, I think, a much more fundamental kind because it requires not restraint, but a kind of energizing, an argument for why life is worth living to begin with. Um, I think that presents a much more basic challenge for our society and in, in, a, in a limited way for policymakers too, to think about how to draw people into engagement, how to help people see what the shape of a flourishing life might be. Um, ultimately, that kind of argument about what a flourishing life might be is probably also a better way to make a case for restraint, to make a case for responsibility. But it's essential for making a case for engagement, for living life, for jumping in, which is, I think, more and more now how we have to think about the nature of social breakdown in America. And that is new to us. That's a different way of understanding what it is that's wrong and why. If we think of the culture war as a driving force, I mean, as it infects all areas of life, um, as our institutional topography flattens out, which you, of course, talk about in the book, um, the only other times in American history that I can really think of where this level of acrimony and bitter partisanship existed, in my opinion, would be um, around the Civil War and Reconstruction era, and then in the 1790s. But how much can we really look to those past times in history to help us get out of this situation? Because in your opinion, were all the institutions flattened out as much in those time periods as uh, in contemporary times? Or how do those uh, contrast and if they do uh, possibly give us any insights into our yeah. issues. I think in some ways they do. I actually, I would argue that acrimony and division and pessimism are pretty much the norm in American history. Um, that the exceptional times are the times when we've been united and confident. Um, and particularly times when we've been united and confident in, in relative peacetime. That is, it's easy to say we were united and confident in the middle of the Second World War or um, in the immediate wake of the Revolutionary War, the, that is the 1790s, and in some ways we were not at all united. Um, I, so I wouldn't overstate the depths of our dilemma in relation to American history. I think that a lot of Americans who are alive today, though not you and I, lived through a period of very unusual cohesion and self-confidence from about the end of the Second World War until about 1970. Um, when it seemed like the United States was, um, was the colossus bestriding the world, um, was united, had extraordinarily capable institutions, public and private, and the world was our oyster. Um, I, I was born after that. I was born in 1977. You're much younger even than that. Um, we didn't experience that, but American culture still and American politics is shaped by the experience of that moment of confidence. A lot of our leaders grew up in that time. I mean, an amazing proportion of our leaders were born in the 1940s, which is very strange in the 2020s. They're very old people. Um, and our culture self-understanding was really shaped in that moment so that we think that was the norm. And we've since been through this terrible decline. But if you were to look in on America at almost any point in the 19th century, I think you would have found a divided society with a lot of confidence problems and with all kinds of social problems too. Not exactly ours, but some of them much worse than ours, of course, 
not only slavery, um, needless to say, but also just general social breakdown and massive waves of immigration sweeping over society in ways that left it very unstable. Um, I think you would have found much the same in, in large swaths of the first half of the 20th century. Um, you would have found polarization that was very intense, say in 1890, um, not just in 1790. And even if you looked at America in the 1970s, I think you would have found a society with just massive problems, in some ways much larger than ours. Real political violence on a mass scale. We have a little bit of political violence, and that's a big problem, but they had much more. Um, a, a loss of confidence, a sense that things were breaking down. Uh, so th there is a way to come back, at least in part, from some of these kinds of problems by recognizing them, by grasping that they are challenges that call on us to take them on, that they should be at the center of our politics. I don't think 1996 was the norm. Um, that was a very unusually peaceful time and stable time. And by the way, even then, I mean, you know, I was 19 in 1996. Everybody was pretty down. I mean, you know, listen to the music of the mid '90s. You wouldn't think that's a society that's uh, that, that's going through the best time that any country's ever experienced in human history. Though it kind of pretty much was. Um, so I, I think there's always a tendency to emphasize the downside, to see the problems. We face that too, but we have a lot of resources to work with in addressing the kinds of problems we have. And what we increasingly have too is a recognition of the problem in, in its proper terms, which is in our time, an absence of solidarity, a breakdown of cohesion and sense of common purpose. I think our politics is trying to fix that. It's not doing very well for now, but I think that things like nationalism on the right, things like identity politics on the left, both of which worry me a lot, are actually attempts to answer that problem, that lack of solidarity. I hope we arrive at better ways to do that um, I certainly think we're going to try different ways of doing that, but seeing the problem is no small thing. It's a real, it's a start and we, and we see it now. We really do. So one of the arguments that you make in the book and that I'm most familiar with, um, is when you're talking about, uh, political parties in Congress and two of the main problems is that they've been too democratized and they're too transparent. But as I have heard you know before, of course, America is a very democratic and egalitarian society. Um, and that tends to ratchet in one way, as Tocqueville talks about. Yeah. So like, I guess what I'm trying to say, has there ever really been successful times where we've ratcheted back on those trends instead of just going for more democratization and more uh, yeah. Transparency. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in some ways, the most miraculous of those moments was the period around the framing of the Constitution um, in in the 1780s. In the immediate wake of the revolution, the United States was intensely democratic. I mean, all of our political institutions were about as radically democratic as they possibly could be. Um, the, the 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 states, for the most part, had. Um, had unicameral legislatures with very weak governors, um, elections every year, and just an intensely democratic political culture. 
the Constitution in some ways was rooted in a recognition that this was not working um, and introduced alongside some very important democratic elements, also some very significant counter democratic elements that allowed for a more functional government. Um, that's unusual, but that moment did happen. I think in some ways we went through um, similar moments like that in the periods of institutionalization in some of the professions in American life in the course of the 19th century, um, which created ways of, um, of trusting authority that were lacking in American life through the creation of new institutions. Um, and so it's possible to do this, but it's not easy. I mean, the, 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 the general tenor, the pressure and direction you find in American life, broadly speaking, is toward greater democratization, greater flattening. You know, Tocqueville saw this in the 1830s and he was absolutely right. Um, that's where everything tends to go so that pulling the other direction takes real effort and it has to be rooted in a sense that things aren't working. I mean, I think right now, for example, it should be perfectly obvious to anybody who looks at our politics that the adoption of primary elections in the 1970s, the Democrats did it in 72 and Republicans had done it by 1980, um, was a disastrous mistake. Um, it has not achieved what people wanted and it has achieved a lot of terrible, terrible deformations in our politics. Um, you know, 100% of political scientists wanna get rid of primaries. Almost nobody else does um, because it, that would seem like saying, well, we don't want you people choosing who the candidates are on election day. That should be done by us, by, you know, the party apparatus. Well, that's impossible to say. And that kind of problem um, means that some very basic dysfunctions in our politics that are making people unhappy can't be addressed because to address them would require saying too much democracy is making you unhappy. I think that's a huge problem in any society like ours. And there's no doubt it's part of what we're dealing with. Yeah, and I think that's another problem that as we talked about with Plato's Republic a little bit earlier, these are very old questions because another book we read was Aristotle's Politics. And yeah. one of the books there, he talks about the issues with uh, democracy and oligarchy. And one of the main ones is that there is multiple uh, legitimate claims to rule, but each faction only sees from their perspective and it's not hard to see how america would only see from the democrats perspective yep uh, one other thing um, i would just like to quickly say before i move on to the next question i do take your point on the constitution but i will also say that of course we revere it and honor it um, as we should um, but that americans as far as i know most of them don't know how close it was to never passing absolutely and just thinking about it, i've read several books on it it's very hard for me to see it passing without uh george washington putting his support by it yep. behind it and i i think it's fair to say um washington has been like a probably the most unique figure in American politics in terms of like having the, the respect uh, yeah. of the entire country. Well, and using that respect in a way that was actually constructive, which is, which is the most, I mean, you know, it, you, you might say Andrew Jackson had everybody's respect and, and he basically used it to promote himself. Um, 
Washington somehow was in a place where he could use it to advance what, what was needed, more or less. And I agree with you. I, I think a lot of the, particularly the counter-majoritarian elements of the Constitution, we revere them. But if they were introduced fresh to us now, we would reject them. I mean, think about the First Amendment. The First Amendment is profoundly counter-democratic. Um, it, it, it basically says some things are beyond the reach of majorities. You cannot, however much you want, even if you're 51%, even if you're 90% of the electorate, you cannot do certain things. Um, I just think you, if we didn't have it and somebody proposed it today, right, free speech that can't be limited by the democratic public, no way would it be adopted, not even close. Yeah, no, most of our commentary is bemoaning the fact that change really only happens through uh, durable majorities, of course. All right, so this is a question not related to uh, your book, but that I've been dying to ask you. You work at AI, of course, which deals with public policy, but at the same time, you are, I would say, uniquely aware of the restraints on what public policy can do. I mean, you wrote a book on Edmund Burke. You've talked many times, I've heard, about how often our political theories don't exactly graft on or aren't as thick as the practice of a liberal society. I've also heard you talk about Hayek and his idea of the knowledge problem. Um, so how has that uh, situated you and made you think of uh, the problems and the resources available to you differently as somebody who is in uh, the public policy world? Well, I think ultimately where it leads is towards some humility about what can really be solved through public policy. Um, I think a lot of things can be improved. I think there are ways for us to um, make some significant social problems less bad with the right kind of public policy and to provide the environment for them to be made better. But the most important work of making society stronger just isn't done through public policy. Um, and I think it's helpful to recognize that. It, 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 it helps you to avoid overpromising and expecting too much um, and leads you to focus on what can be done that's practical and realistic. A second thing I would say is that in our politics, a very, very important purpose of public policy and of the political realm in general is something like social peace. Um, this is a divided, diverse society, and that's not a new problem. It always has been. The Constitution, as we were just talking about, is very much built with that, with the understanding of that in mind. I think the, 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 the single wisest thing James Madison ever said was a line in Federalist 10 where he says, as long as, uh, as, long as human reason is allowed freedom, there will be differences of opinion, period. Um, we're never going to end that. And so I think that um, ultimately it's important to recognize that one vital purpose of our politics is to address public problems through accommodation, through bargaining, through negotiating. That doesn't mean we're going to solve those problems perfectly. There are a lot of problems that could be solved better if we knew just the right person and gave that person all the power in the world, but that would not be good for us. Our politics is ultimately there to allow us to live together with each other, recognizing that some human problems really are permanent. Um, and you know that's a way to think about what public policy is for and what it isn't for. I think that kind of humility is just essential if you're gonna be involved in this space because otherwise you just end up continuously promising things that'll never happen and expecting things that'll never come. 
All right, so unfortunately we're gonna have to come to an end, but before we go, I wanna ask you one, or I guess, to be honest, two uh, last questions. Your book came out uh, near the start of 2020. Since then, we've had the pandemic and we've also had uh, the 2020 election. Um, so first I'd ask, is there anything that's happened since the release of the book that would change uh, what you thought in the book or something that you wish you added in retrospect? And then my second question is the question I like to wrap up all podcasts with, which is what are the top three books you could recommend to listeners in general or just related to the book, A Time to Build? Well, thanks. I there's no question. I mean, the book came out in um, in January of 2020, and then there was a very, very eventful year um, in all kinds of ways. Um, I do think that some of what happened, has happened since has confirmed some of what I thought and argued in the book. Um, the experience of the pandemic certainly suggests that a, a lack of public confidence in key institutions and in authority in general is at the center of what troubles our country. Um, there's some things though that I would have said differently or would have thought about differently. The book a couple of times takes solace in the fact that we don't experience a lot of political violence in this moment in America, and we still don't experience a lot, but there's more than I thought there was, um, of a possibility and openness for that. Um, we've seen more of it since the beginning of 2020 than we had seen in the prior 20 years. Um, and that's certainly something that should concern us. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I would say more broadly that um, if I'd had some of the examples of the, of the deformations of public trust around public health that have become apparent since then, there are ways that that would have shaped some of the arguments of the book. But fundamentally, um, I, I haven't changed my sense of what the problems are, or what the solutions are. Maybe I should have, but I haven't. Um, to the final question, you know, I, I think um, I think every American um, should read The Federalist and should read Democracy in America, which are very different books. They don't agree about everything, but they both are um, they both are ways of drawing wisdom from our own national experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that are uh, unmatched. And, I, you know, however many times you read Tocqueville, you discover new ways of thinking about your own situation that you hadn't seen before and hadn't thought of before. I think those two books are really essential. And The, and, and the Federalist, I mean, it, you know, it, it's, it, it's an example of practical prudence connected to, the, connected to political theory that I think is unlike anything we have in, a, in our tradition. A third book, um, there are a lot of things I might suggest, but I guess I would say in our time, people ought to read Robert Nisbet's The Quest for Community, um, which, is a, which is a book that, um, that thinks about the challenge of social breakdown in a way that's very relevant for us. Amazingly, it was written in the 1950s. It was published in 1953, a time that we think of now as the, as the golden age for American um, civic life. But Nisbet saw almost everything that was coming and understood why in ways that we ought to still be learning from. And with that, thank you so much for taking time out of your day, Mr. Levin. And I highly recommend to all listeners to go 
and hopefully buy or read a time to build from family and community to Congress and the campus, how recommitting to our institutions can revive the American dream. Thanks very much.